Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Friday, January 27th, 2023, the 737th day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'mYourModerator.Substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month, and in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands, and if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free on a variety of podcast platforms, and of course, Rumble. All I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the social media, the writing, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. Now, before we get started, I do have to make a correction from Wednesday's show. A very wise and attentive listener noticed that I mixed up Len Bias and Hank Gathers. Hank Gathers was the basketball player who collapsed on the court and later died. He had prior heart problems and there were issues with his medication, etc. So I was referring to the wrong basketball player from back when I was a kid. But the point remains that a player collapsing on the court and then later dying was national news. And now it's just something that happens every day. So apologies for that slip up. I do my best to make sure things like that don't happen. But hey, going from memory and I messed up. So I hope you'll forgive me. Now let's get into today's topic. Let's talk about George Soros. And let's start with a statement released by Donald Trump this morning. The violent and vicious riots in Atlanta carried out by the anti-police radical left anarchists are an abomination and it has to stop. These extremists smash windows, set fire to a police cruiser, destroyed businesses, laid waste to downtown Atlanta, 
and were even found carrying explosives. They wanted to kill people. They didn't quite have that opportunity, but they would have, and they wouldn't have lost any sleep over it. Unfortunately, nothing will happen to most of these rioters because of the Marxist prosecutors who have seized control of the justice system in Atlanta, just like they are in New York, just like they have in other places. As always, it's hardworking, law-abiding citizens of all backgrounds who pay the price for this radical left extremism sponsored by George Soros, it seems. The rioters who attack our wonderful police officers and destroy so many lives must be punished to the fullest extent of the law. And when I'm president again, if Marxist prosecutors betray their oaths and refuse to protect our citizens, I will not hesitate to send in federal law enforcement to restore peace and public safety. We will restore law and order in America. We've never seen anything like is happening right now. Crime is up by 50, 60, 70, and 100 percent in these radical left Democrat-run cities. We can't let it happen. Our country is going to hell. We're going to make America great again. Thank you. Now, it goes without saying that the president is, of course, correct. What happened in Atlanta last weekend is domestic terrorism by BLM Antifa, and they did it with no apparent justification. They tried a bunch of reasons. None of those reasons make sense. And there is ultimately nothing that can explain burning down cities. That is not how you react to videos that you interpret as police violence against black people and new examples of this pernicious racism that exists somewhere except on the radical left who make everything about race. It is also worth recalling the grand ultimate switcheroo that has happened over the last 60 years as the Democratic Party has been reinterpreted as the party of minorities in this country when the truth is that they are the party of slavery, of the Confederacy, of Jim Crow laws, of the KKK, and of urban decay in largely black areas that are part of Democrat-run cities. They are also the party who filibustered the Civil Rights Act and Lyndon B. Johnson, the Democrat president who eventually signed the Civil Rights Act, said we'll have those N-words voting Democrat for the next 200 years. With that history, it's no surprise that they are still trying to play the race game even today, and that should be even less surprising knowing that the fake president, Joe Biden, was mentored for decades by a Klansman named Robert Byrd, who was naturally a Democrat. Now, the difference between 2020 and right now is that it seems like the country's appetite for domestic terrorism has diminished quite a bit. And over the last two and a half years or so, one would expect that more Americans have woken up to the fact that these incidents that we are shown to justify all of this rioting are essentially fake in full or in part. George Floyd was a criminal who died of a fentanyl overdose while being restrained under a policeman's knee. Breonna Taylor was not shot in her bed on a no-knock warrant. The police were actually returning fire. And Jacob Blake was not an incident of an unarmed black man being shot by police. Jacob Blake was carrying a knife. The police were called to the scene because Jacob Blake had gone to his ex-girlfriend's house and penetrated her with his fingers to smell them and accuse her of cheating on him. And I apologize for the video, but that is what happened, said in its simplest terms. So why is Donald Trump releasing this statement today? Well, a hat tip to my friend Ash at Conservative Daily. She posted this on Twitter earlier. This is a statement released by the fake White House yesterday. Jill and I extend our heartfelt condolences to the family of Tyre Nichols and the entire Memphis community. Tyre's family deserves a swift, full, and transparent investigation into his death. 
As Americans grieve, the Department of Justice conducts its investigation and state authorities continue their work. I join Tyre's family in calling for peaceful protest. Outrage is understandable, but violence is never acceptable. Violence is destructive and against the law. It has no place in peaceful protests seeking justice. Public trust is the foundation of public safety, and there are still too many places in America today where the bonds of trust are frayed or broken. Tyre's death is a painful reminder that we must do more to ensure that our criminal justice system lives up to the promise of fair and impartial justice, equal treatment, and dignity for all. We also cannot ignore the fact that fatal encounters with law enforcement have disparately impacted black and brown people. To deliver real change, we must have accountability when law enforcement officers violate their oaths, and we need to build lasting trust between law enforcement, the vast majority of whom wear the badge honorably, and the communities they are sworn to serve and protect. That is why I called on Congress to send the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act to my desk. When they didn't, I signed an executive order that included stricter use of force standards and accountability provisions for federal law enforcement, as well as measures to strengthen accountability at the state and local level. Today, we all must recommit ourselves to the critical work that must be done to advance meaningful reforms. What a statement. They want impartial justice for all as delivered by the DOJ, who is known for its impartiality and justice and dignity, by the way, for all, except for people who were peacefully protesting on January 6th, or really anyone who's considered a dissident by the regime. But let's learn a little bit about the case. This is from Fox News Today. Tyre Nichols' death. Shelby County DA says all five officers responsible. Video to be released Friday evening. Well, how about that? The fake Biden White House releases a statement yesterday about this just one day before the video is released, and they call for peaceful protest. And we know that their definition of peaceful includes mostly peaceful. And we know that their definition of mostly peaceful includes cities lit on fire by Black Lives Matter Antifa domestic terrorists. So what can you expect to see when this video is released Friday evening? Oh, Friday. That's today. The video of a confrontation between Tyre Nichols and five black Memphis police officers, which ultimately led to Nichols death three days later, will be released Friday afternoon. Shelby County, Tennessee District Attorney Steve Mulroy said during a Thursday afternoon press conference, we all want the same thing. We want justice for Tyre Nichols, Mulroy said. It's my hope that if there is any silver lining to be drawn from this very dark cloud, it's that perhaps this incident can open a broader conversation about the need for police reform. Oh, yes, we're going to have a broader conversation about police reform again. Hopefully they'll just defund the police this time. Maybe this is the incident where they can finally defund all the local police and just have federal police instead. And you know who that's going to help? Black people in urban communities. Except black people in urban communities say at a 80 plus percent rate that they don't want their police defunded. And of course they don't because that makes their neighborhoods more dangerous. Also, what did this say? Five black Memphis police officers. So the black Memphis police officers killed Tyre Nichols because he's black. Can't wait to hear about it. The press conference came after the now former Memphis police were charged with second degree murder and other crimes in the arrest and death of Nichols, a black motorist who died three days after a confrontation with the officers during a traffic stop. Mulroy said a grand jury has returned indictments against Tadarius Bean, Demetrius Haley, Desmond Mills Jr., Emmett Martin III, and Justin Smith. Each has been charged with second degree murder, aggravated assault, Aggravated kidnapping resulting in bodily injury, aggravated kidnapping involving the possession of a weapon, official misconduct through unauthorized exercise of power, official misconduct through failure to act when there is a duty imposed by law and official oppression. Well, okay, that's quite a list. 
While each of these five individuals played a different role in the incident in question, the actions of all the officers resulted in the death of Tyre Nichols and all were responsible, Mulroy said. Attorneys for Martin and Mills were expected to hold press conferences later Thursday. Video footage of the arrest has already been shown to Nichols' family. Ben Crump, the attorney representing the Nichols family, said the video that the family viewed showed Nichols, a 29-year-old FedEx worker and father, was shocked, pepper sprayed, and restrained when he was pulled over for a traffic stop near his home. He had been returning from a suburban park where he had taken photos of the sunset. The legal team said that officers beat Nichols for three minutes in a savage encounter reminiscent of the infamous 1991 police beating of Los Angeles motorist Rodney King. Relatives have accused the police of causing Nichols to have a heart attack and kidney failure. Authorities have only said that Nichols experienced a medical emergency. So I guess we will find out how true all of that description is. There's no reason right now to believe any of that description is true because it's Ben Crump giving it. Ben Crump is the attorney in basically every one of these cases. Here's his Wikipedia. Benjamin Lloyd Crump is an American attorney who specializes in civil rights and catastrophic personal injury cases such as wrongful death lawsuits. His practice has focused on cases such as Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, and George Floyd, people affected by the Flint water crisis, and the plaintiffs behind the 2019 Johnson & Johnson baby powder lawsuit alleging the company's talcum powder product led to ovarian cancer diagnoses. Crump is also the founder of the firm Ben Crump Law of Tallahassee, Florida. In 2020, Crump became the attorney for the families of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Jacob Blake. In 2021, he became the attorney for a passenger in the car with Winston Boogie Smith and for the family of Dante Wright. Ongoing cases surrounding their killings or injuries led to protests against police brutality in America as well as internationally. Due to his legal reputation, he has been referred to as Black America's Attorney General. And that is by the Associated Press, NPR, and Ebony Magazine. And according to Wikipedia, Crump had a big 2022. Here are his cases in 2022. Jamal Sutherland, James Lowry, Jason Walker, Autry Davis, Caleb Walker, Valentina Oriana Peralta, Amir Locke, Walter Hutchins, Zakai Hussein. He sued the Hollywood Police Department on behalf of Michael Ortiz. Uh, April Curley, Lawyer Denson and Eduardo Gutierrez, Manuel Guzman, Patrick Leoya, Amazon workers, Andre McNeil, Geraldine Talley, Ruth Whitfield, Gwendolyn Osborne, Jalen Randall, uh, Rwandan politician, Paul Rusesa Bagina, and the list goes on and on and on. He's very, very busy and doing a very, very important job by essentially ambulance chasing all of the false flag race war events. But hey, I'm sure he's done some good work too. And what about the district attorney in Memphis, Steve Mulroy? Well, Mulroy, as you might imagine, is a progressive Democrat. Here are some details on him. He was elected last year. Mulroy has been on the law faculty at the University of Memphis since 2000 teaching constitutional law, criminal law, criminal procedure, civil rights, and election law, according to the school's website. He is a former civil rights lawyer for the U.S. Justice Department and a former federal prosecutor. He tried a number of voting rights cases, which went to the Supreme Court, multi-million dollar lending discrimination and redlining cases, and bench and jury criminal cases before federal district courts and U.S. Circuit appellate courts, according to his biography at the University of Memphis's website. The policy focuses of his campaign included violent crime, decreasing juvenile transfer, creating a conviction review unit, and seeking bail reform. So like any good communist, he's trying to get criminals out of prison. This DA and Benjamin Crump together are sure to achieve justice in a world focused on law and order. And speaking of progressive district attorneys, Matt Palumbo has been doing a series this week at the New York Post on George Soros. 
his article from Sunday. George Soros spent $40 million getting lefty district attorneys and officials elected all over the country. To see just how much law and order has eroded under George Soros-backed progressive prosecutors, consider Loudoun County, Virginia. The top prosecutor there, Commonwealth Attorney Buddha Bibaraj, announced last week that her office won't be directly involved in the prosecution of misdemeanor charges, including hit and run, eluding police, reckless driving, trespassing, public drunkenness, and failure to appear, among others. So those just aren't crimes anymore in Loudoun County, Virginia, apparently. Soros dumped $659,000 into the Loudoun County Commonwealth attorney race, backing Bibaraj for the position, which she won by a slim 49.5 to 47.5 margin, despite the massive cash advantage. She was sworn into the position in January 2020. And you couldn't imagine an election being stolen in Loudoun County, Virginia. After last week's announcement, Bibaraj claimed that letting all these crimes go unpunished would allow her office to devote more resources to victims of more serious crimes, such as murder, rape, domestic violence, not speeding tickets. So I guess the logic there is making fewer things criminal leads to less crime. As always, the rhetoric betrays the facts on the ground. The exact types of crimes that Bibaraj claims she wants to focus on are the ones she's been neglecting most. The Loudoun County Board of Supervisors decided to give Bibaraj's office a smaller budget increase than requested in 2021 due to high turnover and her handling of domestic violence cases. Of 735 cases brought to her office, she dismissed 491, bringing only 8% to trial. Bibaraj is just one of 75 prosecutors nationwide who were backed by Soros for their pro-criminal bents, as a recent law enforcement legal defense fund report noted. After investing more than $40 million into this project, Soros-backed DAs and their ideological allies now represent at least one-fifth of Americans. That $40 million is a drop in the bucket compared to the $32 billion that backs his political empire. But by focusing on key local races, Soros is having an outsized impact on people's lives. Flipping a legislature and changing the law is a lot more daunting than just electing one person who refuses to enforce the law. In many cases, Soros's prosecutors decline to prosecute cases, toss charges or cut lax plea deals, bypassing the statutes on the books. So egregious are the actions of the Soros-backed progressives that for the first time in history, these prosecutors have become household names, whether it be St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner, who made headlines for persecuting the McCloskeys for defending their home against rioters, Chicago's Kim Fox, known for her role in attempting a cover-up after actor Jussie Smollett's hate crime against Jussie Smollett, and the now-recalled Chesa Boudin of San Francisco, the son of 1960s radicals who was raised by terrorist Bill Ayers and effectively legalized shoplifting in the city. Catalog of Catastrophe While putting together a truly comprehensive best-of-the-worst Soros prosecutors list could fill several volumes, here are just some highlights. Ten days after taking office, Portland DA Mike Schmidt backed with $320,000 from Soros, announced that he'd refused to prosecute rioters in the summer of 2020 and instead defended them. Even though rioting is a felony, he doesn't prosecute those cases. He also refuses to prosecute individuals for interfering with a peace officer, disorderly conduct in the second degree, criminal trespass in the first or second degree, escape in the third degree, and harassment and riot when it isn't accompanied by a separate charge. Philadelphia's Larry Krasner, backed with nearly $1.5 million from Soros, dropped charges on more than 60% of shooting cases and 37% of illegal firearms cases in the two years after taking office in 2018. Oh, that's weird. I thought guns were the whole problem. Not coincidentally, shootings and homicides have spiked since then. In 2020, Philadelphia prosecuted the lowest number of felony cases in 30 years, even though the city saw 499 homicides, more than New York has with five times the population. For reference, there were 351 homicides the year he took office. 
The city saw a record of 562 homicides in 2021 and a slight decline to 516 in 2022, still much higher than when he took office. Soros spent $275,000 in California backing Contra Costa County DA Diane Becton, who was selected by a board of supervisors to serve the rest of the term of her predecessor, who was convicted of felony perjury. Part of the selection process to fill the vacancy included a questionnaire in which Becton repeatedly plagiarized responses, including Martin Luther King Jr. quotes she somehow thought wouldn't get recognized. Well, that's maybe because the fake vice president, Kamala Harris, steals Martin Luther King Jr. stories and repeats them on stage all the time. And because the fake president, Joe Biden, has actually been caught for plagiarizing his speeches and simply makes up stories all the time. Three of five members of the board selected her anyway, and she later won a DA race in 2018. Becton has never served as a prosecutor before. Among the crimes that Becton won't prosecute, graffiti, unless the graffiti offends her political sensibilities. After a couple allegedly painted over a Black Lives Matter mural, she filed three misdemeanor charges against them, including violation of civil rights, a hate crime charge vandalism and possession of tools to commit vandalism. So she's charging them with having paint. Soros backed Aramis Ayala to become Orlando's state attorney for the Ninth Judicial Circuit Court of Florida, donating $1.4 million. In lieu of actual consequences, Ayala has sought to punish criminals like kindergartners by giving them an adult timeout and having their charges dropped in exchange for watching an educational video about resisting crimes and the dangers associated with breaking the law. Ironically, that very exercise teaches them that there aren't many dangers associated with breaking the law. If the philosophy of progressive policing as advertised really worked, that shifting attention away from lesser offenses would decrease more serious crimes, we wouldn't have seen the national crime wave that began in 2020 and has continued to this day, and it wouldn't be especially pronounced in the exact cities following this philosophy. Soros has spent millions backing these extreme criminal justice philosophies, but neither he nor the prosecutors he has backed have any regrets about the increases in property crime, disorder, or even murder. The numbers of young men, particularly black and Hispanic young men, who have been murdered in places like Chicago, Philadelphia, and Baltimore in the years since defund the police, no bail, and raise the age laws went into effect have skyrocketed. Have they no shame? And that's a great question. In Palumbo's article the next day, he references a report called George Soros Media Mogul from the Media Research Center. And rather than going through Matt Palumbo's fine report on this report in the New York Post, let's just go through the report. It's called Propaganda Acolytes, 54 Soros-tied figures linked to major media. The executive summary. The over $32 billion that leftist billionaire George Soros poured into his organizations to spread his radical open society agenda on abortion, Marxist economics, anti-Americanism, defunding the police, environmental extremism, and LGBT fanaticism around the globe has paid dividends. In fact, his funding has helped him establish ties with some of the biggest name media personalities in the United States and abroad, which help indoctrinate millions with his views on a day-to-day -day basis. MRC Business found at least 54 prominent media figures, reporters, anchors, columnists, editors, news executives, and journalists, who are tied to Soros through their connections to organizations that he funds. These include personalities like NBC Nightly News anchor Lester Holt and The Washington Post executive editor Sally Busby. This is the final report in a three-part series that reveals the extent of Soros's influence over the international media. MRC Business's extensive research has uncovered 253 journalism and activist media groups across the world financed to the tune of $131 million between 2016 and 2020 by Soros's enormous network of philanthropic organizations, which allows him to leave an unparalleled footprint on global media. This network of media ties allows Soros to hold sizable influence over the stories that the media covers, how they cover those stories and what stories they don't cover. 
Soros once told the New York Times that he was working to bend the arc of history in the right direction, and he's using his global media clout to do it. The media influence and ties that Soros bought was enough to insulate him from being seriously investigated by most journalists. Whenever a conservative critic dared to raise any objection to Soros's spending and major political footprint, the liberal media worked overtime to characterize those critics as anti-Semites, as Bongino Report content manager Matt Palumbo told MRC Business in an exclusive interview. But mostly what Soros buys is silence. 54 Soros tied figures linked to major media. MRC found at least 54 media figures who are prominent individuals in news and activist media, in addition to some of the most powerful media conglomerates in the United States and abroad. These include figures like NBC Nightly News anchor Lester Holt, CNN chief international anchor Christiane Amanpour, The Washington Post executive editor Sally Busby, PolitiFact editor-in-chief Angie Drobnik-Holin, and Bloomberg News co-founder Matthew Winkler. Soros-tied media figures defend him from his critics. Soros's $131 million in media spending has virtually insulated him from any serious investigations by journalists. If anything, media figures tied to George Soros tend to smear anyone who criticizes him as being anti-Semitic. CNN chief international anchor Christian Amanpour harassed Hungarian Minister of Foreign Affairs and Trade Peter Zsigarto, I hope, and accused his boss, Hungary Prime Minister Viktor Orban, of stoking anti-Semitism because he opposes Soros's radical open border agenda. NBC Nightly News anchor Lester Holt exploited a violent attack on Soros's home to take a generalized swipe at his critics by painting Soros as a target of conspiracy theories. The overwhelming reality of leftist billionaire George Soros's global empire is one of influence, news media and top figures in politics, business and more. The others encompass reporters, anchors, columnists, editors, news executives and journalists linked to organizations like ABC, CBS, NPR, Bloomberg News, Reuters, The New York Times and a host of additional outlets. At 92 years old, Soros has cemented himself as one of the most powerful influencers in global politics through his incredible influence in the media. In the United States, Soros is known for his massive involvement backing liberal policies and politicians. Since the 2016 election, he has spent at least $200 million backing political candidates, which includes $29 million for local prosecutors and district attorneys. In 2022 alone, he committed $128 million to midterm races, according to Open Secrets. The New York Times even conceded that Soros was the largest donor for the 2022 midterms. Even that number was too low. According to CNBC, Soros's Open Society Policy Center quietly funneled another $140 million into political causes in 2021. CNBC analyzed that the quiet funding brought Soros's overall political spending on campaigns and causes since January 2020 to roughly $500 million at the least. That's still just a drop in the bucket compared to the over $32 billion he pumped into his Open Society Foundations since 1984 to shape politics to his liking on a global scale. His global media clout is massive as a result. This is the final report in a three-part series that reveals the extent of the influence that Soros wields over the international media to inundate world populations with his radical leftist ideas on abortion, Marxist economics, anti-Americanism, defunding the police, environmental extremism, and LGBT fanaticism. It is easy to criticize Soros's politics, but he is a savvy investor, whether he's trying to make money or use it to push his agenda. Soros once told the Times that he was working to bend the arc of history in the right direction. He wasn't kidding. Soros's foundation dollars fanned out to a web of nonprofits, many of which are connected to figures with high profile roles in major media organizations. Holt and Amanpour are two of the most well-known in American media, and both went out of their way to defend Soros from criticism. Amanpour, a prominent liberal anchor who focuses on international news, is listed as a senior advisor at the Committee to Protect Journalists, which received $2.75 million from Soros between 2018 and 2020 alone. She aggressively criticized Soros's critics as anti-Semites. In an October 4th, 2018 segment on PBS's Amanpour and Company, 
which Amanpour also hosts. She harassed Hungarian Minister of Foreign Affairs and Trade Peter Giarto and accused his boss, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, of being anti-Semitic for enacting policies to check Soros's influence in that country. As you know, your prime minister has been accused of stoking anti-Semitism through the way he's dealing with George Soros and his praise of the World War II leader Miklos Horthy. He was a Hitler ally. She tried backing Zajarto into a corner by teeing up an opportunity for him to issue a mea culpa to the world for daring to stand against Soros's agenda. Do you regret them, the government's tactics and surge against George Soros, which looked very much like they were using traditional, what's it called, dog whistle, anti-Semitic terminology? Zizarto retorted, I reject that. He proceeded to emphasize that Hungary was opposed to the radical agenda that Soros is seeking for the world, which has nothing to do with his identity. He said, Soros would like to see Europe in a post-national, post-Christian phase. You know, their borders don't count. Their national identity is pushed back. Their migrants are being allowed at least one million a year. Our vision is totally different. He called my prime minister a maniac. He called our country a mafia state. So my question is that if he attacks us like that with money, with media, with funding opposition, or at least NGOs in the country, why shouldn't we have the right to react and say that no? No, we have a totally different concept and we want our concept to win and not yours, Mr. Soros. Not everyone shares Amanpour's prejudiced view of Soros's Hungarian critics. Former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu referred to Orban in July 2018, just months before Amanpour's criticism, as a true friend of Israel. Jewish News Syndicate writer Sean Savage noted over a year later on September 3rd, 2019, the track record for the Hungarian government on fighting anti-Semitism paints a different picture. Savage wrote, Orban has been involved in establishing a national Holocaust Memorial Day and recently pledged $3.4 million to fight anti-Semitism in Europe and is staunchly defended by some Hungarian Jewish leaders as not harboring anti-Semitism. NBC's Holt tried a more subtle strategy for protecting Soros's reputation. When a dangerous individual planted a pipe bomb at Soros's home, Holt, another board member on the Soros-funded CPJ, exploited the story to tie Soros's critics to the attack during an October 23, 2018 segment. Tonight, authorities in New York are investigating who put a bomb in the mailbox of a billionaire philanthropist, George Soros, who frequently donates to Democratic candidates and causes and often the target of conspiracy theories, including in recent days about that migrant caravan. Soros's massive contributions to liberal and democratic causes, then, aren't a news story. They are just an excuse for attacks by his critics, according to the liberal media spin. NBC Universal News Group chairman Cesar Condi, who oversees NBC News, MSNBC, and CNBC, is a trustee at the Soros-funded Aspen Institute, which got $1.165 million from Soros between 2016 and 2020. Condi is also an Aspen Institute Henry Crown Fellow. Soros also has connections in non-English media. NBC Universal Telemundo Enterprises chairman Bo Ferrari leads NBC's push in Spanish language content. Ferrari is also a Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute. CBS has at least two major media influencers connected to Soros. For example, 60 Minutes legal analyst Andrew Cohen holds a plum position at the Marshall Project, which is heavily funded by Soros to the tune of at least $1.25 million between 2016 and 2020. ABC senior vice president for editorial quality Carrie Smith also sits on liberal ProPublica's journalism advisory board. ProPublica received one4 $5 million from Soros between 2016 and 2020. At other media giants like the New York Times and the Washington Post, Soros's money can be traced to people at or near the top. The executive editor of the Post, Sally Busby, also sits on the Soros-funded CPJ board. The New York Times Company's executive vice president and general counsel, Diane Brayton, and Times vice president of philanthropic partnerships, Marsha Parker, hold prestigious positions at two powerful Soros-funded groups, the Institute for Nonprofit News and the CPJ. 
INN received at least $1.533 million from Soros between 2016 and 2020. Soros also has ties to major business media. Bloomberg News co-founder and editor-in-chief emeritus Matthew Winkler is a board member for the Soros-funded CPJ. Bloomberg News in particular boasts that it produces roughly 5,000 stories a day and is read by more than 325,000 terminal subscribers who are among the most influential people in business and finance in the world. Soros funds National Public Radio directly, meaning that a Soros-funded organization also happens to simultaneously be a prominent news outlet. His direct funding into NPR gives him influence with NPR's entire legion of at least 1,800 journalists and 400 reporters and editors in over 200 member stations across the country. No other news organization has the same on-the-ground reach as public radio. NPR boasts on its website, more than 95% of Americans live within range of a public radio signal. So we are positioned to deliver. MRC Business counted 16 individuals within the NPR Board of Directors and Corporate Leadership collectively that either oversee NPR's overall news operations or manage NPR's individual member stations, such as Iowa Public Radio, WSHU of Connecticut, St. Louis Public Radio, and WYPR in Maryland. Because NPR is financed by Soros, all 16 of those individuals are thereby connected to his cash. NPR president and CEO John F. Lansing also served 10 years as a visiting faculty member at the Pointer Institute for Media Studies, a powerful Soros-funded nonprofit considered the gold standard in the liberal media universe. NPR public editor Kelly McBride also works as Pointer's senior vice president and chair of the Craig Newmark Center for Ethics and Leadership. PolitiFact editor-in-chief Angie drobnik Holen serves on the advisory board of Pointer's Soros-funded International Fact-Checking Network, which serves as a de facto ministry of truth on social media, engineered to make sure opinions that oppose the left's narrative on a variety of issues like abortion, transgenderism, COVID-19, and economics are silenced before they gain traction. So George Soros owns politicians. George Soros owns district attorneys. George Soros owns media. Of course, George Soros owns fact checkers, and he also funds radical domestic terrorism in countries all across the world, just like he did in Myanmar in the aftermath of their attempted stolen election and the deposing of the fake president in Myanmar, who is a Soros ally, Obama ally, and Clinton ally by Myanmar's military. George Soros's name is very prominent in news this week. The New York Times released a sort of hit piece, wrap up smear type of article against John Durham and John Durham's special counsel. They are insinuating that a report is to come. John Durham's work is done. The article's headline, how Barr's quest to find flaws in the Russia inquiry unraveled. You see that? The whole thing started with Bill Barr, and it's all unraveling. This is by Charlie Savage, Adam Goldman, and Katie Benner, Communist Hacks for the New York Times. It became a regular litany of grievances from President Donald J. Trump and his supporters. The investigation into his 2016 campaign's ties to Russia was a witch hunt. They maintained that had been opened without any solid basis, went on too long, and found no proof of conclusion. All of those things are, in fact, true. Egged on by Mr. Trump, Attorney General William P. Barr set out in 2019 to dig into their shared theory that the Russia investigation likely stemmed from a conspiracy by intelligence or law enforcement agencies. To lead the inquiry, Mr. Barr turned to a hard-nosed prosecutor named John H. Durham and later granted him special counsel status to carry on after Trump left office. But after almost four years, far longer than the Russia investigation itself, Mr. Durham's work is coming to an end without uncovering anything like the deep state plot alleged by Mr. Trump and suspected by Mr. Barr. That is, if you only look at the conviction status and don't actually read any of the Durham filings, 
which proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that that conspiracy existed exactly as described and widely reported. Moreover, a months-long review by the New York Times found that the main thrust of the Durham inquiry was marked by some of the very same flaws, including a strained justification for opening it and its role in fueling partisan conspiracy theories that would never be charged in court, that Trump allies claimed characterized the Russia investigation. And again, they're assuming everything is coming to an end. It's all going to be wrapped up. The report is going to be nothing. Don't even worry about it. Don't think about it ever again. Interviews by the Times with more than a dozen current and former officials have revealed an array of previously unreported episodes that show how the Durham inquiry became roiled by internal dissent and ethical disputes as it went unsuccessfully down one path after another, even as Mr. Trump and Mr. Barr promoted a misleading narrative of its progress. How dare they promote a narrative that the New York Times does not approve of? Mr. Barr and Mr. Durham never disclosed that their inquiry expanded in the fall of 2019 based on a tip from Italian officials to include a criminal investigation into suspicious financial dealings related to Mr. Trump. The specifics of the tip and how they handled the investigation remain unclear, but Mr. Durham brought no charges over it. Well, OK, sure. New York Times, that makes sense. Mr. Durham used Russian intelligence memos suspected by other U.S. officials of containing disinformation, you know, just like the Biden laptop, to gain access to emails of an aide to George Soros, the financier and philanthropist who is a favorite target of the American right and Russian state media. Mr. Durham used grand jury powers to keep pursuing the emails even after a judge twice rejected his request for access to them. The emails yielded no evidence that Mr. Durham has cited in any case he pursued. Oh, so he hasn't cited the evidence yet. Therefore, there is no evidence there. Therefore, you can forget the whole thing once again. There were deeper internal fractures on the Durham team than previously known. The publicly explained resignation in 2020 of his number two and longtime aide, Nora R. Danahy, was the culmination of a series of disputes between them over prosecutorial ethics. A year later, two more prosecutors strongly objected to plans to indict a lawyer with ties to Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign based on evidence they warned was too flimsy, and one left the team in protest of Mr. Durham's decision to proceed anyway. A jury swiftly acquitted the lawyer, and they're referring there to Michael Sussman. Now, as Mr. Durham works on a final report, the interviews by the Times provide new details of how he and Mr. Barr sought to recast the scrutiny of the 2016 Trump campaign's myriad, if murky, links to Russia as unjustified and itself a crime. Mr. Barr, Mr. Durham and Ms. Danahy declined to comment. The current and former officials who discussed the investigation all spoke on the condition of anonymity because of the legal, political and intelligence sensitivities surrounding the topic. You got that this whole lengthy piece about the Durham investigation and how nothing and pointless it all is, how much of a mistake it has all been since the beginning and how poorly it's been handled. Well, it's all based on anonymous sources. A year into the Durham inquiry, Mr. Barr declared that the attempt, quote, to get to the bottom of what happened in 2016 cannot be and it will not be a tit for tat exercise. We are not going to lower the standards just to achieve a result, end quote. But Robert Luskin, a criminal defense attorney and former Justice Department prosecutor who represented two witnesses Mr. Durham interviewed, said that he had a hard time squaring Mr. Durham's prior reputation as an independent minded straight shooter with his end of career conduct as Mr. Barr's special counsel. This stuff has my head spinning, Mr. Luskin said. When did these guys drink the Kool-Aid and who served it to them? Ah, a story made perfect for the New York Times audience of child-brained communists. So that's the introduction, but let's move down to the section dealing with George Soros. It's called dubious intelligence. During the Russia investigation, the FBI used claims from what turned out to be a dubious source, the Steele dossier. Opposition research indirectly funded by the Clinton campaign in its botched applications to wiretap a former Trump campaign aide, 
Okay, well, that's good. At least we know that the Steele dossier is a dubious source, according to the New York Times. Except the thing is, it's not really a dubious source. It is just a completely worthless source that was created out of nothing and funded by the Clinton campaign. Not indirectly. They funded Fusion GPS, which hired Christopher Steele. That's not indirectly funding the opposition research. That's the company they funded being the ones who paid Christopher Steele. It's all the same money for the same purpose. Great reporting, New York Times. The Durham investigation did something with parallels to that incident. Well, that is quite a sentence. In Mr. Durham's case, the dubious sources were memos whose credibility the intelligence community doubted, written by Russian intelligence analysts and discussing purported conversations involving American victims of Russian hacking, according to people familiar with the matter. Okay, so according to people familiar with the matter, the intelligence community doubts the credibility of these memos, which makes them dubious sources. And to top it off, they might have been written by Russian intelligence analysts. So again, the whole thing is false. In every paragraph, they let you know that everything you might be concerned about, everything claimed by the other side is in fact not wrong, but uh, dubious. The memos were part of a trove provided to the CIA by a Dutch spy agency, which had infiltrated the servers of its Russian counterpart. The memos were said to make demonstrably inconsistent, inaccurate or exaggerated claims. And some U.S. analysts believe Russia may have deliberately seeded them with the disinformation. Some U.S. analysts believed Russia may have deliberately seeded them with disinformation. Again, very, very classy, professional reporting from The New York Times. Mr. Durham wanted to use the memos, which included descriptions of Americans discussing a purported plan by Mrs. Clinton to attack Mr. Trump by linking him to Russia's hacking and releasing in 2016 of Democratic emails to pursue the theory that the Clinton campaign conspired to frame Mr. Trump. And in doing so, Mr. Durham sought to use the memos as justification to get access to the private communications of an American citizen. But wait a second. That was a real plan that was actually executed in the real world. And it's easily proven. There was a purported plan by Mrs. Clinton to attack Mr. Trump by linking him to Russia's hacking and releasing in 2016 of Democratic emails. That is exactly what they did. And the truth is, those emails didn't get to WikiLeaks from hacking by Russians. They got to WikiLeaks from Seth Rich. And we're about to find a whole lot more out about that in the very, very near future. One purported hacking victim identified in the memos was Leonard Bernardo, the executive vice president of the Open Society Foundations, a pro-democracy organization whose Hungarian-born founder, Mr. Soros, has been vilified by the far right. Oh, that sounds exactly like what we were just hearing described in the Media Research Center report. In 2017, the Washington Post reported that the Russian memos included a claim that Mr. Bernardo and a Democratic member of Congress Representative Debbie Wasserman Schultz of Florida had discussed how Loretta Lynch, the Obama era attorney general, had supposedly promised to keep the investigation into Mrs. Clinton's emails from going too far. But Mr. Bernardo and Ms. Wasserman Schultz said they had never even met, let alone communicated about Mrs. Clinton's emails. So I guess that must be true. Mr. Durham set out to prove that the memos described real conversations, according to people familiar with the matter. He sent a prosecutor on his team, Andrew DeFilippis, to ask Judge Beryl A. Howell, the chief judge of the federal district court in Washington, for an order allowing them to seize information about Mr. Bernardo's emails. But Judge Howell decided that the Russian memo was too weak a basis to intrude on Mr. Bernardo's privacy, they said. Mr. Durham then personally appeared before her and urged her to reconsider, but she again ruled against him. Rather than dropping the idea, Mr. Durham sidestepped Judge Howell's ruling by invoking grand jury power to demand documents and testimony directly from Mr. Soros's foundation 
and Mr. Bernardo about his emails. The people said, ah, people. It is unclear whether Mr. Durham served them with a subpoena or instead threatened to do so if they did not cooperate. Now, let's just pause for a second and think about the lengths to which members of the regime have gone over the last couple of years to access private information and to demand the testimony of people, including by the totally illegitimate sham J6 committee, attorney general investigators in the New York investigations and people in the Georgia investigations. They're trying to make it out like Durham was on a wild goose chase here and overstepping the authority of his office when he was doing nothing of the sort. Rather than fighting in court, the foundation and Mr. Bernardo quietly complied, according to people familiar with the matter. But for Mr. Durham, the result appears to have been another dead end. In a statement provided to the Times by Mr. Soros's foundation, Mr. Bernardo reiterated that he never met or corresponded with Ms. Wasserman Schultz and said that if such documentation exists, it's of course made up. So what do we have here? Well, this is a cover-up story on many levels, but the New York Times has now introduced George Soros's relation to the John Durham investigation. And so again, we're hearing a whole lot of George Soros this week, which is interesting because BLM Antifa riots just started again last week, and Donald Trump has put out this most recent statement today in advance of what seems like it will almost definitely be another weekend of rioting and burning and looting by BLM Antifa domestic terrorists. Funded, of course, by George Soros. George Soros, we might recall, was involved in the overthrow of Ukraine in 2014 and was involved in the funding of all sorts of new business ventures that would profit his Open Society Foundation in the reconstruction, the reconfiguration of Ukraine. And of course, George Soros, as we are told, is Jewish. Therefore, any attack on George Soros is anti-Semitic. And that's all very strange for a man who's pumping all this funding into this country, Ukraine, that has an eight decades long history of Nazism and actually has Nazi battalions in Ukraine right now. And the anti-Semitism claim is particularly weird when it comes to George Soros, because George Soros himself was working with Nazis during World War II. And if that sounds shocking to you, you probably haven't listened to this show before, but you definitely haven't heard this interview of George Soros on 60 Minutes from the 90s, where George Soros talks about how he helped the Nazis. When the Nazis occupied Budapest in 1944, George Soros' father was a successful lawyer. He lived on an island in the Danube and liked to commute to work in a rowboat. But knowing there were problems ahead for the Jews, he decided to split his family up. He bought them forged papers, and he bribed a government official to take 14-year-old George Soros in and swear that he was his Christian godson. But survival carried a heavy price tag. While hundreds of thousands of Hungarian Jews were being shipped off to the death camps, George Soros accompanied his phony godfather on his appointed rounds, confiscating property from the Jews. These are pictures from 1944 of what happened to George Soros' friends and neighbors. You're a Hungarian Jew who escaped the Holocaust mm -hmm. by posing as a, a Christian. Right. And... You watched lots of people get shipped off to the death camps. Right. I was 14 years old. And I would say that that's when my character was made. In what way? That one should think ahead, one should understand and, and anticipate events. Uh, and uh, one, one is threatened. It was a tremendous threat of evil. I mean, it was a, a very personal experience of evil. My understanding is, is that you went out with this protector of yours who swore that you were uh, his adopted godson. Yes, yes. 
went out, in fact, and helped in the confiscation of property from the Jews. That's right. Yes. I mean, that's, that sounds uh, like an experience that would send lots of people to the psychiatric couch for many, many years. Was it difficult? Uh, uh, not, not, not at all. Not at all. It, uh, maybe as a child, you don't, you don't see the connection. Uh, but it was, it created no, no problem at all. No feeling of guilt? No. For example, that uh, I'm Jewish, uh, and here I am watching these people go, I could just as easily be there, I should be there, none of that. Well, uh, of course, I, uh, I could be on the other side, or I could be the one from whom it, the thing is being taken away. Uh, um, but there was no sense that I shouldn't be there because uh, that was, uh, uh, well, actually, funny way, it's just like in markets that if I weren't there, of course I wasn't doing it, but somebody else would, 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 would be taking it away anyhow. In other words, the, whether I was there or not, I was only a spectator, the property was being taken away. So I had no role in taking away that property. So I had no sense of guilt. Are you religious? No. So that's who George Soros is. A man who owns the prosecutors, owns the media, owns politicians, owns the fact checkers, funds the rioters in movements all around the world, because, of course, he's also funding the color revolutions that overthrow regimes. He gets involved in elections around the world. He manipulates currencies to destabilize countries. He's a prominent figure at or near the top of the hierarchy in the global regime. And he feels absolutely no guilt about going around, helping to confiscate property from his Jewish neighbors as they are loaded onto Nazi trains. And he profits from all of it. So I got to say, it's awfully nice that he's getting a lot of attention, especially as our current events push him right into the foreground. So as President Trump often says, let's see what happens. I'll be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masked and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic. And Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month. Comes out to under a quarter per episode and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel-couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!